Amen, friends. And it is in the power of Christ that we will hear from God in his word this morning. Why don't you pray with me one more time before we dive into God's word and ask God to bless this time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in faith this morning. Uh, we, We do ask, Lord, that you would please speak to us through your word, that you would encourage us with the truth of this passage, especially as familiar as it may be to some of us, even many of us. Lord, amaze us with the truth of this passage and cause our eyes to be lifted up off the darkness of this world to behold your glory in the face of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder what your response would be to a headline, whether in a physical newspaper or online, what your response would be to a headline that purported to be the most important event in recent history. Think of possible headlines like, researchers make most important discovery in the last 50 years. Or, politicians meet for negotiations that are the most important negotiations in our nation's history. Or dietitian reveals most important secret to fat burning that will change your life forever. What would you do if you encountered headlines like that? Would you even take the time to read them? Or would you just roll your eyes and keep scrolling right past them? No one could blame you for rolling your eyes and scrolling right past them because living as we do, In the information age, we're constantly being bombarded with messages that claim to be the most important messages that people need to hear, the most important news stories, the most important podcast, the most important life hack, the most important diet tip, the most important financial advice, because the only way to vie for people's attention today as we are drowning in a sea of information is to make your story seem like the most important story. And what has that done to us? It's made people skeptical, cynical towards anything that claims to be the most important news or most important message that people need to hear. And rightly so, because the vast majority of headlines Claiming to have the most important news and information in them are just clickbait. But here's the thing. Not every story, not every message claiming to be the most important message or story is clickbait. There is actually one news story one message, one event that is the most important message and event you'll ever hear about in your entire life. The message that you'll hear this morning is the most important message you'll ever hear in your entire life. Now, of course, I don't mean to say that my sermon is the most important message you'll ever hear in your entire life. Instead, my sermon is about the most important message you'll ever hear in your entire life. So I want you to go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
If you're using one of the Bibles that we've provided, you'll find the passage on page 961. If you're not familiar with using a Bible, you just want to turn to page 961. You want to look for the big bold number 15, that's chapter 15, and then the little numbers after that are the verse numbers. We're looking at verses 1 to 11. And if you don't own a Bible of your own, we want to encourage you to take the copy that we provided as a gift from us to you. Uh, The letter of 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he had helped establish about three years before the writing of this letter. And in the passage we're looking at today, Paul is reminding them of what he taught them years earlier about the central message of Christianity. It seems that these Corinthians, these Christians, were in danger of letting go of some of Christianity's core doctrine, some of its non-negotiables. And in our passage, Paul reiterates for them the message of Christianity, the gospel, the most important message you'll ever hear. And what is that message? Follow along as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. This is God's word. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. If you're taking notes this morning, there are three things that we learn about the message of Christianity, the the most important message you'll hear in your entire life. We learn that the message of Christianity is mind-blowing. That is point one. The message of Christianity demands a response. That is point two. And the message of Christianity is a message of grace. That is point three. We're going to look at them in that order. So first, the message of Christianity is mind-blowing. Look at me at verse three again. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So Paul is reminding them of when he first shared the good news of Christianity with the Corinthians on his missionary journey there three years early, but he's not reminding them of everything 
he taught. Instead, he's reminding them of the things that are of first importance. But I think it's important to note this. Christianity teaches many things, but most of those many things are not the main things. But what Paul is about to share with the Corinthians are the main things, the things that are of first importance, the most important truths of Christianity upon which everything else is built. Now look with me at verses three and four. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Foundational to the message of Christianity are two utterly mind-blowing realities. And these two mind-blowing realities are the two things that Paul says are in accordance with the scriptures. The first is that Christ died for our sins. These five words are monumentally important. We cannot lose the sheer awesomeness of these five words simply because we've become accustomed to hearing them and saying them. Christ died for our sins. Just think about each word. Christ, as in Jesus Christ, as in the eternal Son of God, the one through whom all things were made. John, what do you mean by that? I mean everything that you see around you. All things in nature, in space, on heaven, in heaven and on earth was made through Jesus Christ, the living word. He is the one through whom all things continue to be sustained. He upholds all things by the power of his word, says the author of Hebrews. The all-glorious and eternal God who is full of grace and truth, left his throne in heaven to embark on a divine rescue mission of cosmic proportions. Christ, the eternal son of God, took on flesh. He became a man. He lived among us for roughly 30 years. Now just think about this. Now I know that you know this from your own life, whether you live with a spouse or you live with other siblings, or you live with roommates at school, whatever it is, whoever it is that you live with in close proximity to, what happens when you live with people for a prolonged period of time? You inevitably see the not so wonderful sides of them. Other people might say about your spouse, like, oh, they are wonderful, and you're like, they are wonderful, but man, if you only knew, that's what Leah says about me, not what I say about Leah, right? But you see the not-so-wonderful sides of them. God took on flesh and lived among us for 30 years, seeing the worst aspects of human nature. He saw the sin, the lying, the anger, the jealousy, the lust, the corruption. He saw the brokenness broken relationships, injustice, abuses of power. He saw the hurt, 
the disease, the chronic illness and pain. He saw the worst darkness of the world, and yet this same all-glorious and eternal God who created all things and sustains all things, who saw us, warts and all, he died for our sins. Just let your mind get wrapped around that. Jesus knows the worst of you, the worst of all of us as one corporate mass of humanity, and he said, I'm dying for them. Christ died for our sins. He willingly went to the cross to bear the punishment that we deserve. You see, our sins, as John said earlier, have separated us from God. There is a chasm between us and God that is uncrossable because the chasm is the holiness of God, which none of us innately possesses. Our sins have separated us from God. Our sins have condemned us. They have brought us under God's judgment, but Christ died for our sins. The punishment that our rebellion deserved was laid on him. Friends, this is mind-blowing. All of your sins from top to bottom were laid on Jesus Christ and not just yours, the sins of all who would repent and believe in it were, were laid on Christ. God himself took the punishment we deserve. You read in the Bible, Christ died for our sins, you just keep going. No, stop, read those words again, then read them again, then read them more slowly, and then think about every word, Christ died for our sins. Hallelujah! What great news that is for sinners. And yet, the same God who was personally endured attacks from his people, from the very creatures he created, he took on flesh to endure the judgment we deserve so that we, so that we could receive forgiveness, reconciliation, justification, be adopted as, to, as his children and set free from all condemnation. He did this willingly. I mean, do you have any enemies? Maybe not enemies, but people who are really difficult for you. They just get under your skin. Maybe even people who've harmed you in life, when you think about them, like the blood just starts boiling. Do you have anybody like that in your life? Now, let me ask you a question. Would you die for them? Is that the first thought that comes to your mind? I want to die for that person. Of course not. We do not want to die for our enemies, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This just goes to show the mind-blowing nature of the message of Christianity. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, died for our sins. If you have trusted in Christ your sins have been wiped away forever, right? I don't, I don't know how many of y'all are old enough to remember Etch-A-Sketch. I had an Etch-A-Sketch when I was little. It's that box that was filled with some special sand or something. You turn the knobs to try to make drawings on it, right? And then when you didn't like your drawing, you were done with it, you picked up the Etch-A-Sketch and you, you shook it, right? And then it wiped away the drawing and you could start a new Etch-A-Sketch. But what, what happens after you use the Etch-A-Sketch a bunch of times? The drawings don't totally disappear. 
So I kind of see that old drawing there and there. It's just, this, this thing is useless. Our sins are not like the Etch-A-Sketch. What God has done for us is not like an Etch-A-Sketch. Your sins are not just kind of hovering in the background like you see them there and there, here and there, and you can't write anything new over it. God has cleansed you completely through the death of his son, has totally wiped away your record of sins. As far as the east is from the west, he's cast them into the depths of the ocean. He will remember them no more. Friends, that is the message of Christianity. Christ died for our sins. And if you've trusted in him, you can know for certain that you have been forgiven of your sins. And you can know that for certain because of the second mind-blowing thing we learn about the message of Christianity. Look at verses three and four again. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus got up from the dead. He, he didn't just appear to be dead and happen to be buried. The man was whipped within an inch of his life, had spikes driven through his hands and his feet, and we're to expect that maybe he just happened to be struggling a little bit but was still alive and then got up and rolled away a two-ton stone from his grave and walked out and then defeated Roman soldiers, right? This is ridiculous. Jesus got up from the dead. This isn't a clickbait headline. He actually got up. This isn't a conspiracy theory. He got up bodily. He died and then rose. He was killed and then he was raised. He was dead and now he is alive. And because Jesus is alive, everything changes. His resurrection from the dead shows that darkness doesn't win. Despair doesn't win. Sorrow doesn't win. The river of tears that flows and floods the earth today because of the sins and brokenness we experience will be dried up forever because Jesus got up from the dead. This too is utterly mind-blowing. We cannot allow our hearts and minds to cease to be dazzled by this one fact. To not be dazzled by hearing about his resurrection is no different than standing in the garden, walking him watch out, walk out of the grave, and shrugging your shoulders at it, right? Jesus is alive, and that is good news for everyone who is here today, right? You have to understand and see here that with all due respect to other religions, that this is what sets Jesus apart from every other religious leader, Muhammad never got up from the dead. Buddha never got up from the dead. No leader of any social or religious movement in the history of the world has ever gotten up from the dead except for Jesus Christ. Jesus got up from the dead. And his resurrection proves that everything he taught is true. I want you to hear this. Not true for me, but not true for you. No, Jesus got up from the dead is a true statement regardless of whether we accept it or not. As true as it is to say, the son exists. I don't, that may be true for you, but not for me. Yeah, that's fine. 
The Son exists. Jesus got up from the dead. A true statement of fact, right? This is true for all people in all places. His resurrection from the dead proves that God exists, that hope exists, and that eternal life exists. More than that, his resurrection from the dead proves that we have in fact been forgiven of our sins. Right, when Jesus was raised from the dead, God was declaring to the world in the loudest voice possible, I have accepted his sacrifice and all who put their trust in him will be forgiven. Friends, the message of Christianity is mind-blowing. Jesus Christ died for our sins. Jesus Christ was buried. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. But we see that second, the message of Christianity also demands a response. I want you to look at verses one and two. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The gospel that Paul is reminding them of is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? But notice how Paul hones in on their response to the gospel. He says that they had received the gospel. While that may sound passive, it's not passive at all. What Paul means is that when they heard this message, they wholeheartedly believed it and embraced it. They received it as one would receive a dear friend with a hug. You see, the gospel message requires a response. It calls us to a decision. Will we receive this message as true and respond in all the ways that it calls us to? Or will we reject it by not responding to all that it calls us to? We have to recognize today, this is important for us to understand, there is no in-between. There is no neutral response to God. According to Jesus, we are either with him or against him. The one who says, I'm gonna take more time to think about it, Jesus says, is against him, has not believed or received the gospel. So if you're here today and you don't understand yourself to be a follower of Jesus, we are so grateful that you have come to join us today. I want you to think about this. The message of Jesus' death and resurrection that we've talked about this morning, it requires a response. It requires a response from you individually, right? It calls you to decide whether you agree with God that you have in fact sinned against him. And if you believe that you have, it calls you to decide whether or not you believe that Jesus died for your sins and was raised from the dead for your justification. And if you believe those things, then Jesus calls you to turn away from your current way of living and follow him. And the consequences of that decision are not insignificant. This is the most important message you'll ever hear in your life and the most important decision you'll ever make in your entire life. Those who choose to follow Jesus in repentance and faith are promised complete forgiveness of sins now. They are promised a restored relationship with God now. 
and they are promised a future eternal life with him on a restored and perfected planet. But those who choose not to follow Jesus will have to face the judgment for their sins themselves. This is one of the hardest aspects of Jesus' teaching, but we can't avoid it. Because if Jesus got up from the dead, then what he taught about the coming judgment is also true. Right, if you don't follow Jesus, my humble request to you today is that you not dismiss what you've heard today about Jesus. C.S. Lewis was a well-known author who became a Christian as an adult, and he made some remarks about dismissing Jesus that might be helpful for you to consider. Listen to what he said. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. What do you say? Is Jesus God? Did Jesus die for your sins? Did Jesus get up from the dead? And how should that change your life today? The message of Christianity demands a response. But it's not just those who don't follow Jesus who need to make a decision. We see that Christians need to make a decision. They need to decide whether or not they'll continue believing this message. It's clear from the rest of the chapter that the surrounding culture was pressuring the Corinthians to give up believing in the resurrection. And so Paul calls them to continue believing in the whole gospel, the cross and the, the, the empty tomb, if they're going to be saved. I want you to notice there that he says that it's by this gospel that they are being saved. What he means is that the gospel only saves those who continue believing in it. Or to put it another way, we can't make a one-time profession of faith and then go on living however we want and believing whatever we want. Jesus would say, that is not a response that saves. Right, genuine faith looks like actively embracing all that Jesus teaches about how his people should live and think and speak and act. And when we find that we're falling short of how he's calling us to do those things, genuine faith looks like repenting and striving by the Spirit to live as God calls us to live, never trusting in our own works, but only in God's grace. But it's a life of constant repentance and turning because even though we're forgiven of sins, we still struggle with sin. It's a life of 
holding fast to Christ through sorrow and suffering and grief and pain and resting in the fact that as we struggle on our way to the heavenly city, ultimately, it is Christ who holds us fast. For the kids and teens, I want you to think about the necessity of a response to this mind-blowing news. Right, the temptation for you might be that you can think about this later on in life, right? That this isn't a decision that you need to make right now and that you'll get serious about following Jesus when you get older. That might be one temptation of many that you face, right? But responding to Jesus in, re- in repentance and faith is something you can and should do today. You should turn to Jesus and be saved. I want you to think about it this way. Imagine you were given the chance to spend a day with your favorite musician or favorite actor or favorite athlete, and you were like, meh, uh, I'll think about it later. Maybe they'll come around. Maybe Le- LeBron James will hit me up again later in life and, and give me an opportunity to, to hang out with him, right? You, you would never respond that way. You would jump all over the opportunity to hang out with Taylor Swift or LeBron James or Elsa if that's your favorite actor, right? This This is an amazing opportunity. Who wouldn't jump all over it? How much more, kids, is it amazing that God is offering to you a restored relationship with him? How much more amazing is it that he is offering to you spiritual riches through his son, Jesus? He is offering you forgiveness of sins now and for the rest of your life. And trust me when I say that will be precious to you as you get older right? He is promising to you the power of his spirit. Lo, I will be with you all of your days till the end of the age. Jesus is promising you, kids, mind-blowing realities, right? If you've ever seen the meme of people like going, right? That, that's what's happening right now or should be happening in our minds and hearts. What Jesus is offering and has done for us is mind-blowing, We should turn to Jesus and be saved. The message of Christianity is mind-blowing. The message of Christianity demands a response, and finally we see, so comforting of all, the message of Christianity is a message of grace. Look at me at verses eight to 11. Paul says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. If we were studying through the whole letter, we'd find that some of the Corinthians didn't really have a whole lot of respect for Paul. They didn't think very highly of him. He didn't seem to have the power and prestige that an apostle should have. And so by listing himself alongside the other apostles, he's showing that the authority that God had given to him is no less than the other apostles. But we do have to recognize just how remarkable this is. It's remarkable that Paul is an apostle at all. This is a man who hated Jesus. 
He went around from city to city persecuting, imprisoning, and participating in the killing of Christians. And what is it that could possibly change a man who was so utterly opposed to Jesus into a man who would give his life to serve Jesus? We have the answer plainly given in the text. Notice that Paul describes who he was. He was a persecutor of the church. Then he describes who he is. I am what I am. And what is it that stands between who he was and who he is? The grace of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. The grace of God is what has the power to truly change people. But are there things about yourself that you want to change? Undoubtedly there are. Maybe you recognize destructive attitudes or behaviors in your life. Or maybe it's nothing destructive, you just want to be less of a procrastinator, more patient, uh, more gentle with your speech. I'm guessing all of us have things about ourselves that we want to change. I think that's why lists of best-selling books are full of books that help you change. Books about how to get out of your own way. Books about how to not care as much, right? There are so many self-help books because we innately know that there's something about us that needs to change. We're not who we should be or want to be. But the issue with these books is that though the problems they address address and the help they offer don't get to the root of things, they don't provide help with addressing our deepest problems. Our problems are much deeper than we understand and the remedy to those problems can't be found within us or in a self-help book, as helpful as that book might be in other ways. Our problem is that we're separated from God. Our sins have brought us spiritual death. We're we're physically alive, but spiritually dead. And the only thing that can change that spiritual state is God's grace. God's grace is his undeserved kindness to reach down and take our dead souls and breathe new life into them. Right, the grace of God is what sets Christianity apart from all other religions, right? Every other religion on earth basically teaches what we need to do to make ourselves right with God. But Christianity is completely different from all of them because it teaches not what we have to do to make ourselves acceptable to God, but what God has done for us. As has famously been said before, Christianity is not a religion of do, but a religion of done, Right? It's about what God has done for us through the death and resurrection of his son. In Jesus' death and resurrection, God has shown us amazing grace. Grace to comfort us in times of sorrow. Grace to sustain us in times of suffering. Grace to produce spiritual fruit in our lives. And grace to cover all our sins. The message of Christianity is a message of grace. Is that a message that you need to hear today? You you bet it is. Why? Because you and I never stop needing God's grace and never stop needing to be reminded that we have grace from God, lavish grace. If you've come today after another week of giving in to the same sin that you swore you wouldn't give in to again, after another week of battling temptations that you know are opposed to God's will for your life, 
After another week of being impatient with your kids or mean to your spouse or critical of others or whatever it is, or if you've come today battling illness or caring for loved ones who are suffering or if you're struggling at work or in the midst of a season of spiritual depression, if you have repented and trusted in Christ, hear what God has to say to you. It is by the grace of God that you are what you are. My grace is always available for you. You cannot plumb the depths of my grace. You cannot cross the ocean of my grace. You cannot climb the mountain of my grace. My grace has been, is now, and will forever be given to you. And that's hard to actually believe sometimes, isn't it? We know from scripture that God is gracious, but we can't help but distort in our minds how gracious he really is. Right? When we need grace, we imagine that he rolls his eyes at us as a way a parent might roll their eyes at a, at a child who continues struggling, right? Willing to give us grace, but judging us internally nonetheless, right? We imagine that God thinks, oh, great, not you again. W- weren't you just here earlier today? We imagine him as severe, giving us grace, but also tallying the amount of times that you've come, right? Eventually, I'm gonna make you pay. That's what we think about God. Or we imagine him cringing, when he sees us coming for grace again. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland says, we, we naturally think of Jesus touching us the way a little boy reaches out to touch a slug for the first time. Face screwed up, cautiously extending an arm, giving a yelp of disgust upon contact, and instantly withdrawing. This is why we need a Bible. Our natural intuition can only give us a God like us. The God in Scripture deconstructs our intuitive predilections and startles us with one whose infinitude of perfections is matched by his infinitude of grace. Friends, Easter is a celebration that in Jesus' death and resurrection, the fountains of God's infinite grace have been opened up to all, to all who would come to freely drink from his fountain of delights. God saves us by his grace, sustains us by his grace, and will bring us home to glory through his grace. One author said about God's grace, we should be astonished at the goodness of God, stunned that he should bother to call us by name. Our mouths should hang wide open at his love, bewildered that at this very moment, we are standing on holy ground the holy ground of God's grace in Christ. Friends, you will hear lots of important of messages that claim to be the most important messages, the most important news, the most important events. But there is no message, no event that matches the importance of the message of Christianity, that Jesus Christ died for our sins. Jesus was buried Jesus rose from the dead, and all who respond in faith will receive God's grace forever. This is the most important message you will ever hear in your entire life. How will you respond today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us the privilege of hearing the gospel. We pray that by your spirit, you would help all who are here to respond 
in faith and to stand amazed at your grace through the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.